Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing, Dave King engineering. Today, I'm looking forward to a conversation with Lois Anderson. She's the executive director of Oregon Right to Life. We'll talk about Senate Joint Resolution 33 that would enshrine abortion rights and other things in the Oregon Constitution. It would require a vote of the people. It's apply some interesting language to the subject without using the word abortion. Uh, anyway, we'll talk with her about that right at the top of the five o'clock hour. And then following that conversation, Pastor Jeff Peabody perfectly suited the armor of God for the anxious mind. And we'll take a look at um, the history of Israel celebrating a birthday this week. Well, in headline news, Senate Republicans today accused the Biden administration's federal housing finance agency of playing politics with the U.S. housing market by forcing people with good credit to subsidized high-risk mortgages and warned that doing so would put individual homebuyers and the entire market in danger. Senators Roger Marshall and Tom Tillis, both Republicans from Kansas and North Carolina, respectively, and 16 other GOP senators issued this warning in a letter to the FHFA director, Sandra Thompson, that also demanded the details of how this policy decision was made a possible sign that the legality of the move could be challenged. Well, this is um, one way to rein in the artificial intelligence threat. Lawyers are now on the loose covering the issue. President Biden attacked Republicans and supporters of former President Trump in his 2024 presidential campaign announcement while simultaneously calling for national unity, continuing to a contradiction seen throughout his presidency of targeting political opponents as he pledges to bring the country together. He announced that he and Vice President Kamala Harris will seek re-election in a video released early, early Tuesday morning, 6 a.m. Eastern Time. The video echoed his 2020 campaign message of uniting the country and battling for the soul of America. After, what, three years, we're still battling for the soul of America. Senator Bernie Sanders, a former two-time presidential candidate, said Tuesday that he would forego a third run for the White House and would instead endorse President Biden's reelection bid, according to a report by the Associated Press. According to the report, Sanders said that he would do everything I can to see the president is reelected and warned against a victory for former President Trump or another Republican. Two Republican lawmakers on the House Select Committee of the on the CCP, the Communist Chinese Party warned China's goal of space dominance is a serious concern that could potentially harm the United States on several fronts. As former President Donald Trump's once ridiculed decision to create a new military branch to address the new frontier is becoming increasingly validated for its foresight. USSF General Chance Saltzman, and that's U.S. Space Force, Chance Saltzman, the chief of space operations, reportedly warned a Senate subcommittee earlier this year that Chinese satellite technology could essentially use a spacecraft to pull an enemy satellite out of orbit. Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee Chairman Joe Manchin, the Democrat from West Virginia, called out his party's leadership for backing out of a key aspect of the Inflation Reduction Act he notably forged with them this last year. Uh, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and President Biden essentially promised further energy projects and incentives affecting Manchin's state, which helped garner his key vote. 
But Biden more recently broke his promises to Manchin regarding batteries and green energy issues. Manchin warned that in the time since, Russian President Vladimir Putin has weaponized energy resources and that America is at a disadvantage as it is no longer energy independent as it was for a short time under President Trump. Basically, they broke their word to the American people, he said, of the Democrat Party leaders. Greg Gutfeld points out that President Biden was elected four years ago and we're still battling for the soul of America. When does that kick in? Well, sex-specific bathrooms are out and gender-neutral spaces are being forced in. The eradication of women's privacy is no longer theoretical. And Loudoun County Public Schools continue to trailblaze the implementation of woke policies at the expense of student safety. LCPS recently confirmed plans to construct new gender-neutral bathrooms in two high schools next fall, all at the low cost of $11 million, $11 million taxpayer dollars. Floor-to-ceiling bathroom stalls will be attached to a a standing sink corridor in place of sex-specific restrooms. The district is also considering similar changes for locker room facilities. Loudoun County parents should be alarmed not only by the price of such changes, but also because the privacy concerns on the floor to ceiling bathroom stalls. And lastly, because of the principle behind these policy changes, the uh, school district is willing to exchange separated spaces for a solution that endangers students. If approved, the total budget for fiscal year 24 will be nearly one point six billion dollars. And while some Loudoun County parents have announced their support of the change via social media, others have taken to Twitter to complain about the blatant disregard for taxpayers' wishes. $11 million may be a small percentage of their bloated budget, but the dollar amount is nothing compared to the price students' health and safety will pay after new shared bathrooms are installed. President Biden announced, of course, his 2024 re-election campaign. He announced uh, that he and the vice president will seek re-election in a video released early Tuesday. When asked, Corinne Jean, uh, Jean, Jean Pierre, Jean Pierre, let's get that right, didn't tell reporters whether or not President Biden would serve a full term if elected. It's sort of an absurd question. I can understand why she would choose not to answer it. But White House Press Secretary Corinne Jean Pierre declined to say President Joe Biden would serve out his entire term if re-elected at a briefing on Tuesday, then quickly cleared up the comments online. Jean-Pierre fielded questions hours after the president announced he would seek re-election in a three-minute video. That came at a White House press briefing where the very first question was about the Hatch Act and where Jean-Pierre repeatedly tried to sidestep questions that might require to navigate the nuances of the law on politicking by federal employees. Asked if Biden, 80, planned to serve all eight years if elected to a second term, she responded, Oh, I'm just going I'm just not going to get ahead of the president. That's something for him to decide. I'm just not doing that. I'm not going to get ahead of it. Well, does the president plan to serve all eight years press secretary? That's something for him to decide. Again, it's sort of an absurd question. And I I guess I get why she wouldn't answer it for two reasons. The Hatch Act and its absurdity. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back to continue our walk through the headlines. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice 
Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour, a conversation with Lois Anderson, Executive Director of Oregon Right to Life, on Senate Joint Resolution 33 to enshrine abortion and other things into Oregon's Constitution. It would require a vote of the people. We'll find out what happened in that hearing and what happens next. We'll also hear from Pastor Jeff Peabody, author of Perfectly Suited, The Armor of God for the Anxious Mind. All of that coming up in this hour, this second hour. President Biden is set to veto Speaker McCarthy's debt limit proposal. The president is not willing to negotiate or even speak with McCarthy about the budget. He's driving us closer and closer to default. The president is threatening to veto the Republicans' extreme bill uh, to address the debt limit, warning GOP lawmakers their measure could cause a recession and urging them to take default off the table which they actually already have. The White House accused House Republicans of proposing an irresponsible measure that would have hardworking Americans shoulder the burden of devastating cuts while doing nothing to ensure that wealthy or large corporations pay their fair share. The White House said the bill would force severe cuts to education, food safety inspections, rail safety, health research, public safety, border security, veterans, medical care, while also repealing his one-time student debt relief plan. That's debt forgiveness. Joe Manchin dealt uh, with the uh, Democrats in good faith and got burned. He's now pretty upset about that. Two Democratic lawmakers in Virginia were caught on a hot mic last week mocking parental rights as garbage, crap and stupid, according to two recordings posted on social media by Republican State Leadership Committee uh, on the uh, recordings, which were taken at a Friday meeting and uh, meet and greet at uh, Christopher Newport University. State Senator Monty Mason and State uh, Delegate Shelley Simons can be heard ripping Republicans over Senate Bill 1515, a bill that required pornography websites to verify a user's age uh, to be at least 18 before allowing access to its content. They also slammed an amendment to the bill proposed by Republican Governor Glenn Youngkin that would have required children to get permission from their parents to set up social media accounts and use websites that collect user data, such as online shopping sites. The bill passed the state legislature, but Youngkin's amendment was rejected. Randy Weingarten takes a um, pretty hot seat at the at the House uh, at a hearing on the consequences of school closures during the pandemic. The head of the nation's second uh, biggest school union has answered questions from lawmakers on Capitol Hill. The San Francisco Board of Supervisors voted Tuesday to end a boycott of 30 states that passed conservatives law conservative laws rather after the rule proved costly and ineffective. The board voted seven to four to repeal the 2016 law that prohibited city employees from traveling to or doing business with companies in states that passed conservative laws. The Board of Supervisors first enacted the law in an effort to punish states that had enacted what they viewed as restrictions on LGBT rights after the Supreme Court's decision in Obergfell versus Hodges legalized same-sex marriage nationwide. Since 2015, the board had amended the law to include states that, in its view, had limited voting rights and abortion access. It's not achieving the goal that we wanted to achieve, said one supervisor, the sponsor of the legislation, to repeal the boycott. It's making our government less efficient. The rollback comes after a report by the city administrator's office found that no states ever appear to change their own laws in response to the city's boycott. A budget and legislative analyst report also found that city had done a business with the states on the boycott list anyway. 
A one-year period between mid-21 and mid-22 saw waivers for contracts and purchase orders totaling $791 million. Meanwhile, the budget and legislative analysts also found that the city had spent nearly $475,000 in staffing expenses to carry out the boycott that they were not adequately enforcing. Well, after a training for Portland Public Portland Police Bureau employees on interactions with LGBTQ plus people in 2022, many of the anonymous responses from the officers and other staff called it a waste of time or expressed outright hostility. This is the most ridiculous and demeaning training I have ever had to sit through. One PPB employee wrote the assumption that I need to be taught this information because you think I'm going to treat people worse or better due to their orientation is insulting. FYI, it's either male or female, period. Well, the city of Portland posted a transcript of the feedback and a YouTube link to the training videos this week following the public records request from the Oregon um, Oregonian, uh, the outlet uh, reported. The series of short videos were rolled out shortly after the Portland Police Bureau adopted a new directive interacting with members of the LGBTQIA2S plus slash queer community in March of 2022. The videos combine informational segments from the Portland Police Bureau leaders, video statements from LGBTQ plus speakers and animations depicting possible scenarios with Portland police officers or staff. Demeaning, insulting, unnecessary were among the comments. With a stroke of a pen Tuesday morning, House Bill 1240 became law and Washington state became the 10th in the nation to ban the sale of certain semi-automatic rifles. The bill prohibits the sale, import, distribution, manufacture of any military-style assault weapon in the state of Washington starting yesterday. I'm happy, said the governor, happy to say. Opponents took immediate action. Gun Advocacy Group for the Second Amendment Foundation, based in Bellevue, along with other groups and individuals, are suing the state in federal court. Washington State Attorney General Bob Ferguson said the office is ready for the challenge. We are confident we haven't lost a case yet against the National Rifle Association or Second Amendment Foundation when they've challenged common sense gun reform, Ferguson said. My legal team is better than their legal team. I'm confident we'll win again. Well, Sporting Systems, a gun store in Vancouver, is named as one of the plaintiffs and declined to comment. According to court uh, documents, the firearms dealer specializes in high-end rifles, pistols, and shotguns and said the ban substantially constricted its market and harmed its business. I really think Inslee is foolish for putting this ban on semi-automatics, said Will Ward, a gun owner who lives in Vancouver. You can't take away my right to own a gun. The government uh, doesn't have the authority to do that. Well, the court will decide whether or not the state of Washington does, in fact, have that authority. The Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms and Explosives Director Steve Dettelbach refused to define the term assault weapon on Wednesday, saying it was a decision for Congress. Dettelbach testified before the House Judiciary Committee to speak about the pistol brace rule that would outlaw common stabilizing mechanisms. Dettelbach was questioned by Democratic Texas Republican, a representative rather, Sheila Jackson Lee. She would faint if she heard me refer to her as a Republican, who asked the ATF director whether he knew what an assault weapon was after acknowledging the recent mass shooting in Buffalo, New York. Let me just hold up uh, just to, to pay Tribute and acknowledge that these are the deceased. Their families are still mourning of the incident in Buffalo at the grocery store. It was an assault weapon that killed them, uh, said Lee. She continued, my question to you is just simply a yes or no. You know what an assault weapon is. You've seen one. 
Dettelbach deflected the question, saying the term is not something he's qualified to rule on. And he is the uh, director of the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms and Explosives. Again, that would be a decision for Congress to make respectfully as to make that uh, definition. It is there uh, are numerous different legislative bodies that have taken up that question, Dettelbach said before being cut off. If you we laid a weapon on the table, you could pretty much say that falls in the category of assault weapon, Lee interjected during Dettelbach's testimony. Well, the ATF director didn't budge, responding respectfully. That is a decision that different legislative bodies have come up with different definitions for. It would be for the legislators to make that determination, that determined action as to how they would define it unless they were to delegate that authority to the ATF. Well, the back and forth was a continuation of an ongoing conflict surrounding the non-technical term assault weapon. Former United Nations Ambassador Nikki Haley aimed to find a national consensus on limiting access to abortion in speech on in a speech on Tuesday at the Susan B. Anthony Pro-Life America headquarters in Arlington, Virginia. I said I want to save as many babies and help as many moms as possible. That is my goal to do that at the federal level. The next president must find national consensus, Haley said. At the federal level, I will focus on protecting as many babies and helping as many moms As we can, we can build consensus in many key areas like banning late-term abortion and making adoption easier. It wasn't merely pro-life Republicans whom Haley was issuing reminders to, uh, rather pro-abortion Democrats and their allies in the mainstream media need to be called out for their role in trying to score political points by spreading fear among about where Republicans stand on the issue. First Republic Bank uh, shares have have cratered by nearly 50% overnight, and Nestle has raised prices by 9.8% amid the worldwide inflation. We'll get into those stories in just a few moments, but I do need to take a quick break. Again, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, uh, anticipating a conversation with Lois Anderson right at the top of the hour on Senate House uh, or Senate Joint Resolution 33 to enshrine abortion, among other things, in Oregon's Constitution. Stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, shares of First Republic continue to plunge on Tuesday as regulators in Washington and financiers on Wall Street scrambled to come up with a plan to stabilize the ailing bank. The California bank lender's stock price, which is down by more than 93 percent this year, fell by a further 49.4 percent a day after it revealed its customers had withdrawn $100 billion of deposits during last month's turmoil. They said the... um, uh, the leading options are for some of the large U.S. banks that recently deposited $30 billion into First Republic to rescue the lender or for the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation to take control of the institution and offer a government guarantee for all deposits, as it did with SVB. Investors are worried about the grim math behind First Republic's operations. The bank is paying more to borrow money, but many of the loans it made to customers carry long-term fixed interest rates putting a continued squeeze on the bank. First Republic said Monday that while its average account sizes decreased, it's retained 97% of client relationships from the start of the first quarter and also announced a number of changes, including job cuts meant to right the ship. Nestle raised prices by 9.8% amid worldwide inflation. 
The largest food and drink company in the world, not just chocolate, raised prices by a collective 9.8% in the first three months of the year as inflationary pressures increased input costs for the company. Uh, The Swiss conglomerate, which owns a variety of food brands such as Purina, Gerber, Nescafe, and KitKat, said in an earnings report that the price increase in several markets across the world came as a result of significant cost of inflation. The firm's Latin American and North American markets saw 13.4% and 12.4% price hikes, respectively, while the European market saw 10.7% price increase and the Chinese market saw 3.9% price increase. It comes as consumers struggle with uh, sharply higher prices of food, household basics, and beyond. And while year-on-year, uh, year-on-year rather, headline inflation has cooled to 2.9% in Switzerland, it remains at 6.9% in the Eurozone and 10.1% in the U.K. Former President Donald Trump appeared to cast doubt about whether he will participate in the GOP debates. I see that everybody is talking about the, the Republican debates, but nobody got uh, my approval or the approval of the Trump campaign before announcing them when you're leading by seemingly insurmountable numbers. And I'm, of course, quoting and you have hostile networks with angry Trump and mega hating anchors asking the questions. Why subject yourself to being libeled and abused? Trump wrote on Truth Social. The Republican National Committee announced the first primary Debate will take place in Milwaukee in August and will be hosted by Fox News. The RNC also announced the second debate will take place at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library in Simi Valley, California, but the exact date and moderator have not been specified. RNC Chairman Ronna McDaniel has repeatedly warned candidates that they must pledge support for the nominee if they are to be eligible for the debates. The potential for a 2024 general election debates remains in question. The RNC last year voted to withdraw from the Commission on Presidential Debates, um, accusing the group that has run the debate since 1988 of bias against its candidates. Controversial transgender swimmer Leah Thomas uh, slammed her feminist adversaries as misogynistic transphobes who reduce women to the value of their reproductive abilities. Hmm. This coming from the guy. The NC2A gold medalist told fellow trans swimmer uh, Skylar Baylor that her own University of Pennsylvania team- teammates displayed fraud feministic beliefs when they wrote a 2022 letter asking the division to bar Thomas from competition. They're using the guise of feminism to sort of push transphobic beliefs. So women expressing their concerns as women is now considered faux feminism. I think a lot of people, he went on to say, in that camp sort of carry an implicit bias against trans people, but don't want to, I guess, fully manifest or speak that out. And so they try to just play it off as this sort of half support. Well, the idea is that they don't want to compete against males in the sport. They may or may not have any notion about transgender people beyond that. AI is expensive. Elon Musk and others have been Ringing the alarm bell over artificial intelligence, especially since the launch of chat GPT, examples of the powerful technology being used for potentially nefarious purposes, such as writing fake news articles or producing fabricated video footage using actual individuals, is indeed disturbing. However, producing and running this new AI tech is also not cheap. 
OpenAI, for example, costs roughly $700,000 a day to keep its servers running, and much of this cost goes directly to paying for electricity, which, of course, opens another can of worms. Is AI eco-friendly? Just how many windmills is this going to take? Well, the Supreme Court has dealt a blow to fossil fuel companies. Suncor Energy and ExxonMobil Corporation petitioned to have local lawsuits brought against them for their support, uh, their supposed impact on climate change decided on the federal level rather than in state courts. But that was rejected by the U.S. Supreme Court. And while the fossil fuel companies expressed confidence that they would ultimately prevail in these local lawsuits, Chevron Corporation attorney Theodore Boutrous Jr. argued that this should be solely a federal issue. Climate change is an issue of national and global magnitude that requires a coordinated federal policy response, he said, not a disjointed patchwork of lawsuits in state courts across multiple states. He further noted these wasteful lawsuits in state courts will do nothing to advance global climate solutions, nothing to reduce emissions and nothing to address climate related impacts. The Supreme Court of the United States offered no reason as to why it rejected the petition. A majority of Americans support increasing nuclear energy. Speaking of energy, a recent Gallup poll finds that 55 percent of Americans are either somewhat or strongly supportive of using nuclear power to generate electricity. This is the highest level of support of nuclear in over a decade and up 4% since last year. The highest level of public support was 62% back in 1994 when Gallup first asked the question. At the time of that original survey, gas and oil prices were high. The same is true today, but with the added pressure from Joe Biden's anti-fossil fuel agenda and his electric vehicle push, interestingly, the poll found that 62% of Republicans support nuclear energy to just 46% of Democrats. A professor from Duke University wants $14 trillion in reparations for black people. A professor of economics at Duke uh, recently appeared on the Dr. Phil show to advocate for the U.S. government to give $14 trillion in reparations to black Americans. That would equate to every black American receiving a check of roughly $350,000. Hmm, I could certainly use $350,000. If this is what passes for sound economic policy at Duke University, then prospective students seeking a serious degree in economics might want to look elsewhere. The Duke professor in question was William Darity, who happens to be black. He justifies his reparation number by claiming that the federal government has long favored whites over blacks, which he contends explains the household wealth gap between whites and blacks. Never mind such government programs as affirmative action uh, or uh, LBJ's dubiously named Great Society efforts by leftists that ironically but predictably have only made um, the plight of black Americans more dependent on government and less independently wealthy. Penalizing the innocent today for the injustices of generations past doesn't produce justice, rather in itself becomes unjust. It is not the solution. Although $350,000 as an African-American woman sounds pretty sweet. The terrorist main uh, mastermind behind the Kabul airport attack that killed 13 American service members and more than 150 Afghans who were seeking to flee the country in 2021 has been killed. That individual was said to have been an ISIS-K operative and American officials say that the U.S. was not involved in the operation to take out the terrorist, despite promises by the president that they, uh, the U.S. would, in fact, do just that. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby explained that the terrorist who killed in a Kabul uh, was killed in a Kabul operation 
which is another in a series of high-profile leadership losses ISIS-K has suffered this year. Kirby added, we have made clear to the Taliban that it is their responsibility to ensure that they give no safe haven to terrorists, whether al-Qaeda or ISIS-K. So the Biden administration is relying on the Taliban to take out jihadi terrorists for us that the administration promised would be done for the sake of those Americans, those 13 American service members whose lives were taken. Talk about trusting the fox to guard the hen house. Well, Democrats are ripping the DNC for not holding 2024 primary debates. President Biden, now 80, once attacked a 63-year-old rival for being too old. Hunter Biden notified a Burisma uh, colleague of a planned meeting with Secretary of uh, State Blinken. And San Francisco ends its boycott of 30 states with conservative laws after limitations proved ineffective and costly. Only 10 electric vehicles qualify for the $7,500 tax credit and a trans marathoner, a male, defeated 14,000 women in the race after competing as a man months earlier. Corporate America is canceling Mother's Day. And Justin Trudeau claims he never forced anyone to get vaccinated. Israel is celebrating its 75 years of independence this week. The reemergence of an independent Jewish state came nearly 1900 years after the Romans obliterated uh, the um, political autonomy of the Jewish nation. On this day in history, 1607, English colonists go ashore at present-day Cape Henry, Virginia, on an expedition to establish the first permanent English settlement in western in the Western Hemisphere. 1865, John Wilkes Booth, the assassin of President Abraham Lincoln, is surrounded by federal troops near Port Royal, Virginia, and killed. On this day in 1933, Nazi Germany's infamous secret police, the Gestapo, is created. And in 1968, the um, United States detonates a 1.3 megaton nuclear device called Boxcar Beneath the Nevada Desert. 1986, an explosion, the fire at Chernobyl nuclear power plant in Ukraine causes radioactive fallout to begin spewing into the atmosphere. Dozens of people were killed in the immediate aftermath of the disaster. The long-term death toll from radiation poisoning is believed to have been in the thousands. 1994, voting begins in South Africa's first all-race elections, resulting in victory for the African National Congress and the inauguration of Nelson Mandela. 2018, Bill Cosby is convicted of drugging and molesting Temple University employee Andrea Constand at his suburban Philadelphia mansion in 2004. And finally, on this day in 2018, President Trump's White House uh, doctor, Ronnie Jackson, withdraws his nomination to be Veterans Affairs Secretary in the face of accusations of misconduct. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. At the top of the second hour, Lois Anderson, Executive Director of Oregon Right to Life, will talk about Senate Joint Resolution 33. There was a hearing held this week. The bill is designed to enshrine abortion rights in the Oregon Constitution, among other things. We'll talk with her about that hearing and what's likely to come next. We'll also hear from Pastor Jeff Peabody, perfectly suited, the armor of God for the anxious mind. All of that coming up in the second hour of today's program. Well, Disney is suing Florida Governor Ron DeSantis after the state revoked its self-governing authority in a highly publicized feud over the company's political activities. Well, Walt Disney's Parks and Resorts U.S. Inc. 
filed a complaint in the U.S. District Court for the North, uh, Northern District of Florida on Wednesday, alleging that Governor DeSantis orchestrated a targeted campaign of government retaliation against the company that violates Disney's free speech rights. The lawsuit came after a, a board appointed by DeSantis to govern the Central Florida Tourism Oversight District, which houses the Walt Disney World Resort, voted to nullify two development contracts Disney signed in February. Disney, one of Florida's largest employers, said the nullified uh, contracts laid the foundation for billions of Disney investment dollars and thousands of jobs. This government action has patently retaliatory, patently anti-business and patently unconstitutional. The complaint, uh, complaint states that the government and his ally, the governor and his allies have made clear they do not care and will not stop. The communications director for Governor DeSantis said we are unaware of any legal right that a company has to operate in its own government and maintain special privileges not held by other businesses in the state. This lawsuit is yet another uninformed and unfortunate example of their hope to undermine the will of the Florida voters and operate outside the bounds of the law. The lawsuit now involves courts in a battle between DeSantis and Disney that began when the House um, mouse campaign to overturn Florida's parental rights and education law, which uh, detractors misleadingly labeled as the Don't Say Gay Bill. DeSantis, widely expected to run for president in 2024, responded by pushing the Florida legislature to strip Disney's self-governing authority and to create a new board full of his appointees, which now uh, have control over the theme park's development. However, before the new board took control, Disney pushed through changes to the special tax district agreement that limited the board's actions for decades. We'll find out what the courts have to say. Three Colorado teenagers have been arrested for allegedly throwing rocks at five separate vehicles across uh, Jefferson County last week, killing one 20-year-old woman, according to authorities. The Jefferson County Sheriff's Office on Tuesday identified the suspects as Joseph Koenig, 18, Nicholas Mitch Carroll Chick, 18, and Zachary Kwok, 18, of Avada, Colorado. This week's recognition of crime victims' rights reminds us of the courage and resilience of crime victims, including the Bartell family. They are our motivation, the Tuesday statement said. Well, between 10 p.m. and 12 a.m. on April the 19th and 20th, the suspect or suspects allegedly threw rocks at five different cars, injuring multiple drivers and killing 20-year-old Alexa Bartell after a rock went through her windshield while she was driving, uh, according to the local media. Well, the suspects are each facing charges of first-degree murder and extreme indifference. The first judicial district attorney's office uh, may file additional charges in the future. Mugshots were not available at the time of the publication, but Bartell had been driving while talking on uh, talking to her friends on the phone and then went silent. The Federal Bureau of Investigation is warning American citizens to stay out of Haiti amid a surge of violence that included an American couple being kidnapped last month there. And while we understand that there are strong ties between Haiti and South Florida before traveling there, one should consider the trauma and financial costs of being kidnapped not only to themselves, but to their family and friends as well. That's a quote from FBI Supervisory Special Agent Liz Santa Maria. And this week, the Miami Herald reported, according to the FBI's Miami field office, kidnappings are surging in Haiti uh, to the tune of 300 percent increase for the first three months of 2023 when compared 
to 2022. Haitian gangs have turned to extreme measures with atrocities akin to those reported during the genocide in Rwanda, according to a Haitian doctor in an interview from his home in Port-au-Prince late last month. Lawlessness, torture, civil war, and the purge were all used to describe what life is like for people living within the western borders of the island of Hispaniola. The people of Haiti continue to suffer one of the worst human rights crises in decades and a major humanitarian emergency. That's a quote from United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres in a recent report to the U.N. Security Council. With a high number of fatalities and increasing areas under the control of armed gangs, insecurity in the capital has reached levels comparable to countries in armed conflicts. The State Department is currently advising Americans not to travel to Haiti due to kidnapping, crime, and civil unrest. Well, there's a new book out I would encourage you to pick up. We're going to try to arrange an interview here soon. But Connor Boyack and Corey DeAngelis have a new book. It's um, Mediocrity. Let me get that right. Mediocrity, 40 Ways Government Schools Are Failing Today's Students. And it provides a concise explanation for why Americans have begun abandoning the woefully inept public school system. Just an asterisk here. I'm not uh, talking about, nor are they talking about the professionals who are committed to teaching students, but who are subject to the same rules that are um, imposing uh, mediocrity. But nonetheless, it does talk about the system. Anyway, 40 chapters rife with examples of failure paint the American public school system as a Catalyst for the exodus to alternative options, case after case of abuse, academic inaction, hemorrhaging budgets, political strong arming and a lack of vision showcase a public education environment that's uh, anything but beneficial for the students of the best nation on earth, or at least was the best nation. As a former teacher, uh, administrator and science academic, um, Tony Kennett, who reviewed the book, um, which Uh, I had an opportunity to read recently uh, makes the point that he was disappointed by the lack of ability in modern education writing to build qualitative assertions for future policy by citing and applying quantitative data. Mediocrity is a pleasant surprise. Each of the 40 facets of the U S public education's failures is built upon a foundation of test scores and performance tracking legal cases and precedents Uh, Broad coverage surveys and statements from professionals of varying backgrounds and political opinions in education, psychology and policy. So it's a resource that I'm looking forward to uh, sharing if we can uh, gain access to one or both of the authors. Again, the book is Mediocrity, 40 Ways Government Schools Are Failing Today's Students. Well, coming up in our second hour today, I'm looking forward to a, a conversation with Lois Anderson. As we mentioned earlier this week, Senate Joint Resolution 33 was up for a hearing. It was only introduced last week and had a hearing this week um, to enshrine abortion rights, among other things, into Oregon's Constitution. We're going to talk not only about the details of the legislation that would have to be referred to the uh, voters in the state of Oregon in order for the Constitution to be amended, um, but what is expected to be next? How did the hearing go? Was it favorable or, or not? Uh, is this uh, legislation from the standpoint of its supporters really necessary, uh, given how pro-abortion uh, the state of Oregon actually is? Anyway, we'll get into all of that with Lois Anderson. And then a conversation with Pastor Jeff Peabody. Perfectly suited is the title of the book, The Armor of God for the Anxious Mind. 
Uh, we'll also recall the anniversary of the founding of modern uh, Israeli state. That's uh, coming up in the second hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Stay with us. News and traffic are up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later this hour, we'll hear from Pastor Jeff Peabody, author of Perfectly Suited, The Armor of God for the Anxious Mind. That's coming up later this hour. We'll also talk about Marxian, Marxian education and Israel's birthday. All of that coming up later this hour. Well, the day before yesterday, I talked about Senate Joint Resolution 33. It was introduced just a week ago, and there was a public hearing on Tuesday. It's seeking to amend the Oregon State Constitution to include abortion as a right. Well, uh, joining us to talk about uh, the legislation, the hearing uh, yesterday, and what's next is Lois Anderson, Executive Director of Oregon Right to Life. Lois, nice to have you with us. Thanks for joining us. Sure. Nice to be with you, Georgine. Well, let's start by reviewing the contents of Senate Joint Resolution 33 post-Roe. I mean, Oregon, we knew, was going to be a very strong abortion state in terms of public policy. But what is Senate Joint Resolution 33, and how do they justify the need for it? Well, it, it is a constitutional amendment that they want to refer to the ballot um, in November of 2024. And it uh, basically enshrines um, the right to abortion in the Constitution as well as um, anything related to gender, gender identity. What's really interesting is that they don't use the word abortion in the measure. They use pregnancy, pregnancy outcomes, and related health decisions. Hmm. So the ballot title will actually um, be be about pregnancy and not about a, about abortion. So in a weird way, um, it's kind of encouraging to, to us that um, they believe in some ways that abortion is still, uh, even in Oregon, is still um, controversial enough that they don't want it to be a part of the wording in the ballot measure. But it is not... It, it is not about pregnancy. It is about abortion and ending the lives of innocent human babies. Yeah, the, the euphemism they choose is, is so peculiar. Uh, uh, pregnancy outcome, which, of course, is there is no outcome. It's ended before there is one. Uh, exactly. And it may, it may also be worded to mislead people into thinking, well, this is something less than abortion. This is, you know, uh, so whatever the reason behind the language, you're right. Um, it does indicate that using the word might be more controversial than they'd like to think in the state of Oregon. But amending the Constitution uh, to do what uh, Oregon law already permits, sadly, uh, seems like something of a desperate move. Is this virtue signaling from that perspective or what do you think about what's behind it? It it honestly seems to be so un, unnecessary. Mm-hmm. And there there was a lot of um, hand wringing, it seemed like yesterday in the hearing, is somehow that that overturning Roe v. Wade was now endangering um, access to abortion in in Oregon, um, which just seemed a little over the top um, as we were sitting there listening, because we have laws in place and we have political people in power in Oregon that pretty much guarantee that for this foreseeable future abortion um, 
on demand for any reason and paid for by taxpayers will continue to be the policy in Oregon. Um, and so it, it, it's puzzling, um, honestly, other than they had, uh, you know, a parade of their, uh, on, to be frank, their, their campaign supporters coming in and testifying in favor of this legislation um, from the OEA to the Public Employee Union, SEIU, um, to Planned Parenthood and Basic Rights Oregon. Wow. Yeah, it just seems absurd. Uh, give us a little bit of an idea of the hearing. I know that Oregon Right to Life was encouraging pro-life people to prepare and come and testify before the committee. You mentioned some of the organizations who were represented. How did the hearing go? And do you think it's likely to end up before voters to determine whether or not to amend Oregon's constitution? Well, I I just want to give a shout out to Oregon pro-life advocates, because every time, starting in December, every time we have put out the call for people to show up, they have shown up and they have shown up in numbers far greater um, than the proponents of these measures. And um, while the the end result may may or may not be what we want. It it does matter. It really does matter when people mm-hmm. come to the Capitol in person, are willing to wear a sticker, testify. Um, it all it all um, makes an impact. And I've just been so proud of people because I know it's a sacrifice. It's not an easy thing to to um, spend your day to come down to Salem and and listen to people lie about the humanity of the unborn when you believe so passionately. Um, so we had a, a good turnout and it was um, honestly a pretty, I mean, it was a, it was a, there was a, uh, allow my kids use this. There was a good vibe in the room from the people that were there. Um, but the, the political reality is that it's supported by all of the majority leadership. The Senate majority leader was there, the Senate president, the House majority leader. And so um, there are definitely procedural things that pro-life legislators can do and are trying to do. But it is hard to see how this could be stopped um, this session, and it probably will end up on the ballot next year. Mm. Well, Oregon was one of the few early states to legalize abortion before uh, the Supreme Court decision. Um, it has been sold out to the practice since uh, that time and since Roe versus Wade. And I, I don't anticipate major changes policy wise uh, anytime yeah. soon. But there is a live and a vibrant pro-life uh, community here. People who are willing to distinguish themselves as standing um, apart from the majority and to speak for life. And that that's what we are called to do is to speak the truth in love. And that's what Oregon Right to Life is orchestrated and pro-lifers in our community have done. Now, as you mentioned, this is in the Senate um, uh, Rules Committee. What happens next? Are there more hearings? Are they simply going through the procedural uh, process of putting this on the ballot? What happens next? The most likely next step is for them to hold a work session. So yesterday was just a public hearing. Then the committee has to hold a work session and vote it out of committee for a vote of the full Senate. And um, after that, if it passes, then it would go to the House and go through the, the same process. What I don't know, because it is a ballot measure, is whether or not it's possible that it may have the same path that House Bill 2002 has, which is a bill we've talked about um, 
that is a um, dangerous, horrible bill. Uh, but it, what happens with bills that cost money is they go down to the Joint Me- Ways and Means Committee, and then um, once once it's uh, gone through the process down there, it actually skips the it skips the second house and doesn't go to another policy committee. I know that's in the weeds a bit, but it actually is important because mm-hmm. it kind of it it cuts back on the process. You know, we all learn that it goes through the House and it goes through the Senate or it goes starts in the Senate and goes through the House and it has to go through that complete cycle. But they've short they've they've developed a shortcut to that process. So we'll be watching that and we'll be letting people know what to expect next. Um, and and just everybody use your opportunity to express your voice. And I was really honored yesterday. We asked um, uh, uh, an Oregonian woman uh, named Amy who actually survived an, an abortion um, in, in Oregon. Um, I guess I shouldn't say how many years ago, because, <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, she, she is an incredible woman and she has a powerful story. And it was just such an honor to sit next to her and, and watch her tell her story um, to the state Senate and to and to the public of uh, the truth that babies survive abortions because um, abortions end the life of a unique and developing human being. And um, if, if anything else, if uh, being able to have the opportunity for her to speak publicly in that um, in that format and for that truth to be heard, um, it was worth it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Telling those stories, you may not influence the entire room, but there are individuals in that room who may think twice about the subject. And that's um, that's what we're called to do for folks who want to follow this. And I appreciate the emails that I received from Oregon Right to Life updating me on what's happening in the legislature. What's the best way for our listeners to connect with you so that they can stay informed? Yeah, really the best way is to sign up for our email list, and you can do that at our webpage, um, ortl.org, and there's a spot there for you to sign up for our email alerts, and that really is the the quickest and best way for us to keep people informed. Absolutely. I find it very helpful. So I would encourage people to do that. ORTL.org for the Oregon Right to Life. Lois, once again, I thank you for your faithful leadership and for talking with us today. Thank you, Georgine. God bless. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, a conversation with Pastor Jeff Peabody, author of Perfectly Suited, The Armor of God for the Anxious Mind. We'll also talk about about Marxian education and Israel's birthday later in the hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. What do you do when your own mind turns on you? Fear, anxiety, and the critical voices in your head can be overwhelming, even if you believe Christ died to free you from all of those things. When he found himself in a mental and emotional meltdown, my next guest, Pastor J.D. Peabody, reached for the armor of God. In the process, he discovered God's protection and grace were far greater than he had previously imagined. Perfectly suited... His book explores the armor of God through the lens of personal struggle, showing how the ancient metaphor for God's care is powerful for his embattled children in every generation. The full title of the book, 
perfectly suited the armor of God for the anxious mind. Well, my guest is the founding pastor of New Day Church in Federal Way, Washington, a graduate of uh, graduate rather of Fuller Seminary and Biola University. He's written for Worship Leader, First Things, Christianity Today and Plow.com. He and his wife live in the rainy but beautiful Pacific Northwest, you know, the same area we live in. And we're just delighted to have uh, have you with us today to talk about your latest book, Perfectly Suited, The Armor of God for the Anxious Mind. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Well, I appreciate so much that you have shared elements of your story. I think it really helps those who struggle recognize that this is more common than we might imagine. And the fact that you serve in a pastoral role, I think, really helps as well that you've been vulnerable in acknowledging your personal challenge um, and where you found help. So first of all, I'd want to commend you for the book uh, and for the sermon series that I guess this book uh, came out of. Yeah, you know, um, it was it was really interesting. I had never really uh, seen the armor of God in through the lens of anxiety before. But mm-hmm. once it was in the midst of my own struggle, uh, I, it just kind of opened up in a whole new way for me. And I was so grateful. Well, you write about uh, your struggles with anxiety. Um, talk a bit about when you first noticed this challenge and how that played out in your life. Yeah, uh, you know, for most of my life, uh, I, I hate to admit that I was really largely out of touch with my emotions. Um, and maybe that's a, a typically male uh, fact, but uh, I I just, at any given time, you could ask me how I was feeling, and I probably couldn't tell you because I was just disconnected from what was going on inside. Uh, and yet, our, our brains and our bodies are feeling it, even if we aren't aware of what's going on and eventually they're going to get our attention. And uh, sometimes that comes out sideways. And for me, it, it came in the form of what I, what I refer to as kind of my emotional uh, mental meltdown, where all of a sudden I just found myself being bombarded with these intrusive, unwanted thoughts that it just felt like my mind was spinning out of control. I told people it felt like my brain broke and, uh, and I didn't know what was going to happen what was happening. It was, it was frightening to me and it was alarming. And I, I went on a walk with a friend of mine who also be a therapist. And uh, as we're walking along, I'm just, I'm just crying, which was also very uncharacteristic of me. And I'm just pouring out my heart and I get to the end of my long uh, tirade here. And, and I say to him, uh, I, I, I'm not an anxious person. And he looked at me and he laughed. And it was not the reaction I had been going for, um, but uh, but it really caught me up short and it made me realize uh, it was like he was saying, have you ever even really looked at yourself? Mm-hmm. And I, 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 it caused me to um, really take stock and begin to uh, see myself differently and a step back. And, and that kind of really uh, led me on a journey that's led right up to today of, of kind of beginning to see, oh, yeah, there's there's a lot more going on under the surface than I realized. Yeah, I think that's probably true for most of us. The scripture says, be anxious for nothing. And it wouldn't have uh, merited its own <laughs> its own verse, if you will, if it wasn't really common among us that we tend toward anxiety, some more than others. So is what you're telling me it's possible to be in a position of leadership, to be a worship leader, a pastor, a women's ministry leader, a parent and still still struggle somewhat in these areas? And be a Christ follower. 
Absolutely. And I think I think that's actually part of the struggle for Christians in particular is because of verses like that. We we read those and we go, okay, well, this, the Bible says, don't be anxious, don't worry, don't be afraid. And I'm feeling these feelings. And so then we feel guilty for having these feelings and we compound our suffering by suddenly now we're we're a bad Christian because we're experiencing this. And so then that leads us to either trying to pretend and, and perform for people to say, oh, no, I'm okay, I'm fine, or, or we push it down and we we bear all this guilt. When I think, um, I, at least I have kind of come to a place of learning to read those verses a little differently and see in them not so much reprimand as reassurance. And yes. so uh, it, it's like a, a father, uh, it is our father <laughs> saying to us, you know, you don't you don't need to worry. You don't need to be afraid uh, because I've I've taken care of these causes that are that are alarming you. And so, uh, to be able to receive it less as a as a scolding and more as a comfort. Absolutely. In referring to your own book, and we're talking about perfectly suited, and I love the the title, by the way. You say that this is a book about protection and vulnerability, about defensiveness and pain and avoidance. Uh, tell us how this book is about all of those things in the context, not only of exposing those areas where we are vulnerable, but how the armor of God um, is, in fact, designed for the anxious mind. Sure. Well, you know, I think, um, like I was saying before, if if we are feeling uh, that that not only are we are we experiencing all this anxiety, which for me felt like something that it, it wasn't like I could just choose to turn it off. It, it was, it felt beyond my control. Uh, but, but when it feels like this is something that you, you shouldn't be feeling, then uh, you're going to be avoiding that. You're going to be trying to pretend it doesn't exist or push it down. Um, and so you, you begin to rely on your own, uh, self-defensive protection kind of mode to to put shields up around yourself uh, instead of just bringing it to God because you know uh, grace is for all these things that we we can't fix ourselves. That's that's why Jesus came uh, because we couldn't fix the problem of sin and all the brokenness that is attached to that. And so um, to to instead go to him and and realize that the the armor of god is really his his gift to us you know i i grew up in a in a christian home where uh i i heard about the armor of god all the time growing up and and really it felt like the the emphasis was typically placed on the picking up and putting on the armor mm-hmm. and and so uh there was there was so much stress on what you're doing with the armor that it it could become one more thing to get right uh, for God, rather than to say, "Oh, God is telling me I have I have done this on your behalf, and this is this is about uh, your protection." Because if I'm if everything if all my security is in the way that I'm picking it up, then that's not really God's protection for me. That's me protecting myself. And so, learning to to view the armor of God in a whole different way and see uh, that it's really all about. Jesus and his grace for us and um, to receive it um, has, has been a big journey. 
We're talking about the book Perfectly Suited, The Armor of God for the Anxious Mind. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about how the armor of God does, in fact, uh, address this challenge that that many of us face on a regular basis. Again, my guest is Pastor Jeff Peabody. He is the uh, founding pastor of New Day Church in Federal Way, Washington. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Pastor J.D. Peabody. He's the founding pastor of New Day Church in Federal Way, Washington, a graduate of Fuller Seminary and Biola University. He's written for Worship Leader, First Things, Christianity Today, and Plow.com. He and his wife live in right here in the Pacific Northwest. His book, once again, is titled Perfectly Suited, The Armor of God for the Anxious Mind. Um, We often live with the illusion that a life of trusting God equals fewer problems. I'm not sure where that concept comes from, but is there a danger in expecting that I'm a follower of Christ and therefore uh, it's pretty smooth sailing from here on out? Yeah, I think that is just such a natural uh, way that our minds work as we we think that uh, if if God is asking us to live a certain way, uh, that that's going to pay off in in you know at least if there's not going to be uh, fewer problems for us, that maybe the duration won't be as long or it won't be quite as bad of suffering, and uh, that's that's just not the case. I think uh, God's God's armor for us is is not to take away the battles, but to protect us through the battles. And uh, so, we wouldn't need armor if if there weren't uh, a mm-hmm. struggle. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I think um, it's really easy to to assume that, though. Absolutely. Well, how do you define spiritual warfare in your book? And is struggling with anxiety a form of spiritual warfare? Is this something that the enemy exploits? Right. Yeah. You know. Uh, really, spiritual warfare can can just uh, send people so many different directions uh, when you talk about it. Uh, either you've got people on the one hand who uh, deny its existence at all and don't don't want to even go there, um, and then on the other extreme, you have people seeing a, a demon behind every tree and and really, uh, you know, giving the devil more credit than he deserves mm-hmm. for for things that are just part of life. Um, I, I kind of have a very simple view of spiritual warfare, and and I just would define it as anything that negatively affects our spirits. So uh, you know that that means that uh, it doesn't have to be necessarily caused by the devil, uh, but but once something is in play, he's not above using whatever. We definitely do have an enemy, and uh, he is looking for every advantage over us that he can find. And uh, so I I do think, you know, anxiety is certainly something that the devil can use as as, uh, spiritual warfare. But I think about Paul and his example of the the thorn in the flesh that, you know, on the one hand, he he refers to it as a messenger of Satan. And then by the end, he's flipping it around and saying that it's something God has used in his life. And so I think the same is true for for anxiety, it started out definitely feeling like uh, this is this is of the enemy, uh, and yet I've also seen God really redeem it and turn it around to be something that He has changed my life with, and uh, and broken me down with, and uh, and broken through some things that I really needed for Him to uh, dismantle. 
Well, let's talk about the armor of God and how it can help uh, relieve one of the anxious mind. When we read the scripture that we're not supposed to be anxious, it suggests that, yeah, that's a tendency that we have, but God has made provision for that. Talk a bit about how the armor of God can address this struggle with an anxious mind. Yeah, you know, I think, uh, especially for me, uh, I'll just use my my own experience as an example here. I, I think when I I was diagnosed uh, in the process of all this anxiety, eventually got to a diagnosis of obsessive compulsive disorder. And, uh, you know, I think part of the compulsion part of it for me uh, has has been to constantly scrape uh, for my own motives. And uh, I, I, I equate it to this sort of spiritual version of compulsive hand washing, always trying to get clean and feeling like you can never quite get there. And, and this constantly, um, you know, just evaluating myself and, and being really uh, judgmental of myself. And I think um, as, as I can come to that acceptance of the fact that um, I'm never going to be able to get myself clean, uh, then I can see that the, the armor of God, when he talks about the, the shield of faith, it's, it's putting faith in what Christ has already done for me and saying the only thing that is going to protect me and make me okay is what Jesus did on the cross. And that's, that becomes then my safety and my shield. And when I am hiding behind that, it's like uh, scripture says that he, he shelters us under his wings. And, uh, and so I, I learned to rely on his doing that for me rather than, than my own uh, best efforts to, to get clean on my own. And that, of course, is always the challenge for us to take full advantage of the tools that he's given us in order to be uh, victorious uh, in this life. You write about the uh, the shield of faith. You write about having your feet shod, about the breastplate of righteousness. Um, all of these tools can help us to to deal with an anxious mind. How has that worked for you? You know, I think the uh, the the piece of the armor that I've developed the most affection for is the the helmet of salvation, um, because of everything that was happening inside my my brain, and uh, I realized uh, I, I got this picture of of you know a, a a patient in the hospital who has just undergone some sort of uh, brain brain surgery or is recovering from a brain injury and the the doctors will will put a, a helmet on them to to protect them and i realized that the the helmet of salvation is is to cover the uh the wounds inside my head as well as the attacks mm-hmm. from the outside and uh that that was a great comfort to me and and to realize that um i didn't need God to take the anxiety away for me. What I needed was to be freed from the power of that anxiety. And so uh, to, to allow it to be there and for God to use it and, and to, instead of say, God, uh, eradicate this, take it, take it away to instead say, you know, be glorified in this, uh, use it. And um, so I, I feel like that's what he's continuing to teach me. Mm. What do you say to the listener today who maybe for the first time is making a connection between the armor of God 
and the anxious mind that they struggle with? What do you say to them to offer some encouragement um, and some guidance, as does your book? Mm. Well, I think the first thing I would want to say is uh, I'm, I'm so sorry for your suffering um, and and you're not alone in it. Um, I think part of putting my story out there is just to uh, encourage people. It, it can be so isolating and it feels like you're the only one in the world uh, who who understands what you're experiencing. And and I think, um, you know, I think about Jesus being so stressed in the Garden of Gethsemane that he sweat uh, drops of blood and and go that is that is understanding being under the pressure uh, of of uh, an anxious mind as he looked forward to or looked ahead to what was in front of him and and he understands and he knows and and also uh, his grace in in his armor is so much bigger and and so much more of a gift for us than we could ever imagine and so to uh to pick it up and and grab onto it as a as a lifeline rather than as something to to do right for god well the book once again is titled perfectly suited the armor of god for the anxious mind it's published by aspire and currently available uh, any parting words on the the book and to uh to those who like you have struggle with uh, anxiety well, I would just use the words of Mr. Rogers and say, if it's mentionable, it's manageable. And so to be able to talk about what you're going through with someone, uh, it, it just um, it just does a world of good to press into relationship when, when it feels like you'd rather just isolate and withdraw. Mm. And so I encourage people to, to reach out. Well, let me just ask you, for those who have friends or family who struggle with anxiety, how might we best encourage them to uh, to press into what God's word offers to us in the armor of God? What would be helpful? Mm, that is a really good question. And I think, um, you know, the the one thing I would encourage people is to not burden people with the, the added weight of, of guilt around it and uh, to, to offer the encouragement as, as comfort that's in scripture rather than as a an admonition that you shouldn't feel that right now mm-hmm. uh, and to, to validate the, the feeling and to, um, to come alongside and, and listen more than give advice, I think is, is good. Well, again, I thank you so much for joining us today and for the book perfectly suited. Thanks pastor. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much. Hey, you're listening to the Georgine Rice show. When we return, we'll return to some of the day's headlines. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, you may not have noticed, but Israel is celebrating its 75th birthday, 75 years of independence this week. The emergence of an independent Jewish state came nearly 1,900 years after the Romans obliterated the political autonomy of the Jewish nation. Well, following the Romans' destruction of the temple in 70 AD, which many of you who know the scriptures are familiar with, Jews ultimately scattered across the globe, forced to disperse not only by the Romans, but also by other hostile powers, such as the Spanish Inquisition, 1,400 years later. Even where permitted to live, restrictions on economic opportunities and religious practice were commonplace. Then the Nazis in the 1930s and 40s attempted to annihilate not only the Jewish identity, 
but also the very physical presence of the Jewish people from the face of the earth through the genocide of the Holocaust. Clearly, its originators hadn't read the scriptures. Yet throughout those calamities, the Jewish people continued to hold legitimate title to uh, the land, to Israel, and to cling to the hope embodied in Israel's national anthem. As long as within our hearts the Jewish soul sings, as long as forward to the east to Zion looks the eye, our hope is not yet lost. It is 2,000 years old to be a free people in our land, the land of Zion and Jerusalem. Well, inseparable from the Zionist idea is the geographic location of the land of Israel, the land that Abraham's cattle grazed some 4,000 years ago after he forged a new life, separated from his family in Ur of the Chaldeans, is the same land that his descendants cultivated following their escape from slavery in Egypt. In fact, the very plot of land in Hebron, purchased by Abraham to bury the matriarchs and patriarchs of the Jewish people, is visited by his descendants each and every day. More than 3,400 years since the Exodus and more than 3,000 years after the reign of King David, modern Zionism remains inseparable from Israel. Eretz. Zion specifically referred to a particular mountain just outside Jerusalem, conquered by King David. Well, the evils of the past two millennia, they failed to extinguish this Jewish spirit. And when Theodore Hetzel, the father of modern political Zionism, began his life's work in the 1800s of securing a homeland for the Jewish people, he soon discovered that only the promise of reestablishing a nation in the promised land itself, the land of Israel, could fully ignite this aspiration in the hearts of Jews who were dispersed across the globe to once again have an independent nation of their own. In 1948, the state of Israel emerged more than 2,000 years after its people were banished from their homeland. This eternal inheritance nestled between the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River can't be exchanged for an ephemeral peace. To that end, the eternal capital of Jerusalem must always remain undivided, and communities in Judea and Samaria must be enabled to thrive and strong defense capabilities maintained. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu eloquently expressed it this way. The days when the Jewish people remained passive in the face of genocidal enemies, those days are over. We are no longer scattered among the nations, powerless to defend ourselves. We resorted, uh, rather restored our sovereignty and our ancient home. For the first time in 100 generations, we, the Jewish people, can defend ourselves. Well, the history of Israel is a living history. One of the most poignant memories of my first visit to Masada, an ancient Roman fortress situated above the desert plain overlooking the Dead Sea. You stop there, you pause on the tour, you look at the ruins to hear the story of the Jewish patriots who chose to forfeit their lives at the top of that rock rather than surrender their heritage and their freedom to the advancing Roman army. A young Israeli defense forces soldier Rifle by his side and reading a prayer book after applying the Tefillin used in prayer bore homage to this storied past and to the promise of God, the God of Abraham, recorded in Genesis 12. Now God said to Avram, get yourself out of your country, away from your kinsmen and away from your father's house and go to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great and you are to be a blessing I will bless those who bless you, but I will curse anyone who curses you. And by you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. I, as a Christian woman, am the inheritor of that blessing. 
Today marks the 75 years of independence of the uh, nation of uh, Israel, the Jewish state um, that um, came nearly 1900 years after the Romans obliterated the political autonomy of the Jewish nation. It is an occasion to be remembered. Uh, my my heart's desire is that I would have an opportunity once again to visit the nation of Israel. And I hope that uh, that opportunity will present itself uh, in my old age. I've actually been there seven times. I've stood in the very place of Masada and all of the other places that um, are storied in the scriptures. And I, I hope one day to return. If you ever have the opportunity to do so, I would encourage you. Also, if you're interested in what's happening in Israel today and how it relates to the scriptures, I would encourage you to check out a new ministry, Blessers of Israel. Uh, you can look them up online, Blessers of Israel. It was started by Pastor Rich Jones from Calvary Chapel Hillsboro uh, and his associates. And you will find there current events that are happening there, but not just in stark um, uh, contrast to the political uh, winds of the, the region, but what the scriptures m- might have to say about what's happening there and how that might play into events that we know will occur in that region of the world. So I would encourage you to check that out. Um, blessers of Israel. Well, in other news, House Republicans delivered Speaker Kevin McCarthy the biggest win of his tenure, leading the chamber so far on Wednesday by passing his bill to raise the debt limit and slash spending, a bill that serves as the GOP's position on how to avoid a debt crisis in the coming weeks. The bill passed in a narrow 217-215 vote. Every Democrat voted against it, as expected, along with four Republicans, Andy Biggs of Arizona, Tim uh, Burchett of Tennessee, Ken Buck of Colorado, and Matt Gates of Florida. Republicans cast the vote as a win that puts them in the driver's seat in negotiations they hope can happen with the president in the coming weeks. President Biden has refused to entertain anything other than a clean increase of the debt ceiling without any negotiations about moving forward, while Republicans insist that he should agree to some trimming in the federal budget as a condition of raising the government's borrowing limit. Uh, If President Biden's um, uh, got a better idea, it's long past time that he puts those ideas on the table. The House Majority Leader Stephen Scalise out of uh, Louisiana said on Wednesday on the House floor, this is not a problem you run and hide from. In fact, when you're asked to be president of the United States, you're the commander in chief. You're the leader of the free world. This is not a job where you run and hide from the tough things Uh, These are the moments where you step up Well, without some agreement to raise the debt ceiling. The federal government is at risk of not being able to pay its bills sometime around early June. In the legislation just passed by Republicans um, in the House, it does raise the debt ceiling, but it requires some uh, discussion about spending moving forward. The House vote came after several dissenting GOP lawmakers gradually fell in line behind McCarthy. Uh, today, after spending hours in the speaker's office the day before. So this required some uh, real effort on his part, some leadership. Uh, so we'll uh, continue to follow that story and the details as the debt limit looms and negotiations. Well, they've stalled, but they continue. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Dave King for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.